Well, today is going to be a little bit different, as I mentioned before. We've been in a series in the Gospel of John, and today we come to John chapter 19, which is really the record of Jesus going to the cross, suffering for each one of us. It's what happened on Good Friday. It's what we celebrate every year at Good Friday. But as we come to this point in the life of Christ, we thought, what if, what if this Sunday, what if today would be a Good Friday remembrance for all of us together? And throughout the morning, we're, we're going to actually read through all of John chapter 19. Seth and Charity are going to, to read our scripture for us. And then we'll take time to pause and make some observations and, and pull out some, some life lessons and interspersed, we'll have opportunity to respond in worship through a song called How Deep the Father's Love for Us. It's almost as if the lyrics of this song are born out of John chapter 19 and the crucifixion story. And so we hope today that um, we will be able to better grasp together all that Jesus did on our behalf. And so we're going to stay seated. And even when we respond in song, we just want this to be kind of a, a peaceful, somber in some ways, reflective time. And so let's begin with John chapter 19, beginning in verse 1. Then Pilate had Jesus flogged with a lead-tipped whip. The soldiers wove a crown of thorns and put it on his head, and they put a purple robe on him. Hail, king of the Jews, they mocked as they slapped him across the face. Pilate went out, uh, outside again and said to the people, I am going to bring him out to you now, but understand clearly that I find him not guilty. Then Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate said, Look, here is the man. When they saw him, leading priests and temple guards began shouting, Crucify him! Crucify him! Take him yourselves and crucify him, Pilate said. I find him not guilty. The Jewish leaders replied, By our law he ought to die because he called himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this, he was more frightened than ever. He took Jesus back into the headquarters again and asked him, Where are you from? But Jesus gave no answer. Why don't you talk to me? Pilate demanded. Don't you realize that I have the power to release you or crucify you? Then Jesus said, You would have no power over me at all unless it were given to you from above. So the one who handed me over to you has the greater sin. Then Pilate tried to release him. But the Jewish leaders shouted, If you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who, de anyone who declares himself a king is a rebel against Caesar. They said this, Pilate brought Jesus out to them. Then Pilate sat down on the judgment seat, on the platform that is called the stone pavement, in Hebrew, Gabbatha. It was now about noon on the day of preparation for the Passover, and Pilate said to the people, Look, here is your king. Away with him, they yelled. Away with him and crucify him. What? Crucify your king? Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar. The leading priest shouted back. Then Pilate turned Jesus over to them to be crucified. It's hard to imagine, isn't it, this horrific scene? 
Jesus is, is ordered to be beaten as if he was the worst of criminals. And if it wasn't already bad enough, they further humiliated him by shoving a crown of thorns on his head, draping him with a purple robe. And they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. Now, this title that Jesus was given as king, it was uh, given to him way back at his birth when the wise men referred to Jesus in this way. And some interpret this to mean that Jesus would eventually become a political king and rule as a leader of his people. But the title was meant to declare Jesus as a different kind of king altogether, a Messiah, a Savior, a spiritual king the promised one, the Lord and the Savior. But the Jews, uh, Jesus' own people, didn't even accept him as king. Instead, they mocked him, as we saw. And it seems like it couldn't have gotten any worse, and yet it does. And even Pilate is surprised by what happens next. In John chapter 19, verse 6, we read it just a moment ago. It says, when they saw him, the leading priests and the temple guards they began shouting, crucify him, crucify him. You know, death by crucifixion was reserved for the most horrific of criminals. According to the Jewish law, it could also be leveled at someone who had committed blasphemy. And so that's why the Jewish people were after Jesus in this way. And of course, the Jewish leaders, they had been wanting to get rid of Jesus. He was getting too much clout, too much attention. He was messing with their religious system of sorts. And so instead of doing what was right and letting Jesus go for doing absolutely nothing wrong, Pilate succumbs to public pressure and he gives in. They said, away with him, they yelled, away with him, crucify him. And Pilate responded, we just read this, what, crucify your king? He was, even Pilate was confused. And they said, we have no king but Caesar. And it says, the leading priest shouted back. And then Pilate turned Jesus over to them to be crucified. So Jesus was taken away. Let's reflect on this and let's respond in worship together. How deep Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure, that He should give His only Son to make a wretch His Himself, he went to the place called the place of the skull in Hebrew Golgotha, 
There they nailed him to the cross. Two others were crucified with him, one on either side, with Jesus between them. And Pilate posted a sign on the cross that read, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. The place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and the sign was written in Hebrew, Latin, and Greek, so that many people could read it. Then the leading priests objected and said to Pilate, Change it from the king of the Jews to, he said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate replied, no, what I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they divided his clothes among the four of them. They also took his robe, but it was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said, rather than tearing it apart, let's throw dice for it. This fulfilled the scripture that says, they divided my garments amongst themselves and threw dice for my clothing. So that is what they did. Standing near the cross were Jesus' mother and his mother's sister Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother standing there beside the disciple that he loved, he said to her, Dear woman, here is your son. And he said to this disciple, Here is your mother. And from then on, this disciple took her into his home. So I want us to notice two important things from what we just read that are happening in this scene. First, when John writes about the soldiers uh, dividing up Jesus' clothes, he makes sure to make a point that there's something much, much bigger happening in this moment. In fact, here's what the text says. This fulfilled the scripture that says, they divided my garments among themselves and threw dice for my clothing. Now that phrase, this fulfilled the scripture, it points to something else that's happening. It's pointing to a prophecy or a prediction that was made long, long ago about the person who would be the Messiah, the Savior of the world. And now it was coming to fruition right in their midst. D.A. Carson uh, puts it this way, saying how important and significant this was. He says, all of the details of the Messiah's life, ministry, death, and exaltation are in conformity with the Father's plan. In other words, what was happening to Jesus, even though it is gut-wrenching and horrific, in this very moment, God has had a plan, a plan that he was working out, a plan that was focused not on himself, but upon us. And the thing that we want to notice here is that Jesus, he's probably speaking, uh, experiencing un unspeakable pain, and yet in the midst of his pain, he shows care and concern for another, specifically for his own mother. Look at what the text says in John 19, verse 26. It says, when Jesus saw his mother standing there beside the disciples that he loved, he said to her, dear woman, here is your son. And he said to the disciple, here is your mother. And it says, from then on, this disciple took her into his home. In Jesus' last moments alive, He's not focused on his own pain and suffering. He's focused on the needs of others. And I love the words there that says, and Jesus saw his mother. He saw her. 
He probably saw her weeping. He saw the tears in her eyes. He saw the pain and the anguish that she was going through seeing her son crucified like a criminal. And when I think about Jesus' care for his mother in his suffering, it makes me think about Jesus' care for you and me in the midst of our suffering. That when Jesus was in his most terrible moments, he was thinking about others, and that included you and me. It's, it's a reminder to us that Jesus cares, that Jesus sees. And he didn't just see Mary, his mother. Jesus saw us, and Jesus sees you. Whatever it is that you're facing, whatever it is that you're wrestling with, wherever in your life there's pain or loss or anguish or hurt, Jesus sees you. Let's, let's take a few moments to reflect and to continue to respond in worship. John 19, verses 20 and 30. Jesus knew that his mission was now finished. And to fulfill scripture, he said, I am thirsty. A jar of sour wine was sitting there, so they soaked a sponge in it, and they put on a hyssop branch, and they held it up to his lips. And when Jesus had tasted it, he said, it is finished. And then he bowed his head, and he gave up his spirit. When we look at all the four gospel records of the life of Christ and the crucifixion, we know that Jesus uttered a total of seven different phrases while he hung there on the cross. The one that seems maybe a little bit odd or out of place is what we just read in verse 28. It says, Jesus knew that his mission was now finished, and to fulfill scripture, he said, I am thirsty. I think there's two things that this phrase from Jesus on the cross 
says to, to you and to me today. First, it reminds us that Jesus thirsted just like we thirst. Jesus was human. <laughs> he felt what we feel, including things like hunger and thirst. And in this moment, when he's absolutely in anguish and parched, Jesus admits his thirst, his need, his pain, his suffering. It's a reminder to us that Jesus gets what we feel. But there's a second thing that I think Jesus' words here says to us, and that is that Jesus thirsts so that we don't have to thirst. We've been journeying through the Gospel of John, and if you think back to John chapter 4, we read the story of the woman at the well where Jesus offers this woman what he calls living water. And you think about, just like Jesus, he was parched and his, he was thirsty. There's something deep down inside of us. There's, a, there's a, a soul thirst. Deep down inside of our lives, there's a, there's a dry and parched land that's looking to be fulfilled, that's looking for something more. And, and we try to fill that thirst with all kinds of different things. And, and the, the soldiers, they offer something, but it's, it's bitter <laughs> to Jesus. And the same thing happens in your life and my life. As we seek to try to fill the thirst that's down deep in our souls, we fill it with things that really are bitter. We try to fill this thirst with, with stuff. We try to fill this thirst with sex. We try to fill this thirst with some form of addiction. We try to fill this thirst by making everybody around us happy, whatever it is. And yet, it just leads us dry. It leads us wanting for more. It leads a bitter taste in our souls. And it says that uh, Jesus, he felt that same thing. But Jesus offers us the living water. Jesus thirsts so that we don't have to thirst, so that we can actually be fulfilled with his life for ours. And we know this is true because of what Jesus' last words are on the cross. In verse 30, it says, When Jesus had tasted it, he said, It is finished. Those words that we just sang. It is finished. And then he bowed his head to the ground and he gave up his spirit. It's interesting that uh, there was a sign uh, above Jesus' head that said, King of the Jews. And here the king has succumbed to death. The king has humbly given his life. The king, the one that is in charge, gives himself away. And he makes this declaration, it is finished, which really was a term in the Greco-Roman world. It's the term tetelestai. It actually was a word that was stamped on a, a bill or document that meant something had been paid in full. And Jesus, in his last dying breaths, utters these words and says, tetelestai. It is finished, paid in full. Our sins, our death, everything that we deserve, Jesus 
has paid for in full. The grave, the penalty of sin and death and hell, Jesus paid it all. It was finished. So there's no longer any need for us to try to pay our own way, to pay for our mistakes and our mess-ups. Jesus has paid it in full. There's no reason to try to uh, impress God or gain his favor because on the cross, Jesus gained God's favor for you and me, paid in full to telestai. It is finished. And so we don't have to worry. We don't have to worry about being good enough to have the hope of heaven because on the cross, Jesus said, it is finished to telestai. It's taken care of when we place our faith and our hope in Jesus. And so let's take a few moments to reflect and to respond in worship together. day of preparation and the Jewish leaders didn't want the bodies hanging there the next day, which was the Sabbath, and a very special Sabbath because it was Passover week. So they asked Pilate to hasten their deaths by ordering that their legs be broken, then their bodies could be taken down. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the two men that were crucified with Jesus, but when they came to Jesus, they saw that he was already dead, so they didn't break his legs. One of the soldiers, however, pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water flowed out. This report is from an eyewitness giving an accurate account. He speaks the truth so that you may also continue to believe. These things happened in fulfillment of the scriptures that say, not one of his bones will be broken, and they will look on the one they pierced. Afterward, Joseph of Arimathea, who had a who had been a secret disciple of Jesus because he feared the Jewish leaders, asked Pilate for permission to take down Jesus' body. When Pilate gave permission, Joseph came and took the body away. With him came Nicodemus, the man who came to Jesus at night. He brought about 75 pounds of perfumed ointment made from myrrh and aloes. Following Jewish burial custom, they wrapped Jesus' body with the spices and long sheets of linen cloth. The place of crucifixion was near a garden where there was a new tomb never used before. And so because it was the day of preparation for the Jewish Passover, and since the tomb was close at hand, 
and leave Jesus there. So after Jesus dies, John tells us that Jesus was pierced in his side by a spear. And when this happened, both blood and water came pouring out, proving that Jesus had indeed passed. And right after John tells us this, he follows up with these interesting words in verse 35. Here's what it says. It says, this report is from an eyewitness giving an accurate account. He speaks the truth so that you also may continue to believe. So there's a few thoughts on this phrase, this eyewitness, what was really happening. Some scholars believe that the eyewitness uh, was John himself. Others believe that this was more of an editorial comment after the fact by someone else that was there. Some even say that Perhaps the witness was a Roman soldier, the one that had pierced Jesus' side. Regardless, we know that what John is getting at here, he's trying to help us and the reader understand that there were witnesses who could corroborate the story of the death of Jesus the Christ. And most importantly, he includes this detail of a witness being there so that we would read the story, so that we would hear what Jesus did, and so that we too would believe. Now, it goes without saying that a lot of people don't believe in God, right? For a number of reasons. Sometimes it's because of bad experiences in a church. Sometimes it's because of just bad experiences in life, and people think, well, how could I believe in a God that would allow such a thing to happen? Sometimes people don't believe in God, because deep down inside, they, they don't want to have to surrender control of their lives. They want to be the God of their own lives. Whatever reason it might be, I can understand why, why many people have rejected a belief in God, but sometimes that's because they don't have an accurate picture of the God of the Bible. I love what Tim Keller says about this. He says, describe the God that you have reje rejected. Describe the God that you don't believe in. And he said, maybe I don't believe in that God either. <laughs> it's something really significant for every single one of us to think about. See, God, John isn't writing this gospel in order to try to force or to convince us that we have to believe. He's not going to force himself on us. He's not going to force the truth of Jesus and what he did on the cross uh, on your life or my life either. He gives us the choice. But what John was doing in the Gospel of John that we've been studying is simply giving his eyewitness account of what he saw, of what he heard, of what he really experienced. And every single one of us Regardless of what we believe about God, what we believe about Jesus, what we believe about the Bible, have to wrestle with this eyewitness account. What John records, he saw with his own eyes that Jesus really was God in the flesh. John saw Jesus perform miracles as a sign that God is real and that the kingdom of God had come near through the person of Jesus the Christ. John realized that 
Jesus fulfilled the prophecies in the scriptures of old that he and his ancestors had been looking for, waiting upon. John watched as Jesus was beaten and arrested and crucified. John was astonished when Jesus did what he said he would do and then rose from the grave three days later that we'll look at in the next couple of weeks together. And John discovered firsthand how the person of Jesus could change a life, changed his life, and changed a myriad of other people's lives. And that his death on the cross was the ultimate payment for our sin and mistakes and mess-ups. And by that death, we could be all made whole, have a chance at real and new and everlasting and abundant life. And John invites us to read, to wrestle, but he invites us to believe in Jesus, the resurrected one. Let's worship him together. Let's stand and celebrate and honor the one that has given everything for us. Thank you, church. You are, you are dismissed. Have a great Sunday.